Today, I would like to discuss one of the most uh, formidable, one of the most divisive, one of the most harmful walls in human history. Now, this is a wall that survived for generations, hundreds and hundreds of years. It's a wall from history that your Bible discusses, and understanding what it's all about and why it's referenced in the Bible provide lessons for Christians today, especially if we are crucified with Christ, especially if we understand and have really taken part in the Passover, and we are that body of Christ. What are some walls that you can think of, maybe from your high school history classes or from some of your reading? What are some real walls you can think of uh, that have been famous uh, down through time? Well, of course, there's the Great Wall of China. Uh, That was constructed more than 2,000 years ago. And it's interesting, recent archaeological surveys uh, by China's State Administration of Cultural Heritage have actually found that the wall's much longer, the Great Wall of China, than was thought for many, many decades, many centuries. It's about 13,000 miles long. Uh, That's more than half the circumference of the globe. And, of course, it winds and turns along its way. Uh, That's more than four times the length of the United States from coast to coast. The average height of the Great Wall of China is about eight meters high. And again, it's not a continuous wall, but turns and weaves uh, as it goes along its path. Before then, there's a famous wall that you may have read about in western Turkey. These walls still exist. Uh, These walls were built in the 13th century B.C., more than 3,000 years ago. And these walls were so mighty that they withstood siege for 10 years. You read about this in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Homer wrote about these walls. These are the walls of Troy. And these are the walls written about in the Iliad and elsewhere, where King Agamemnon led the Greeks uh, to go get revenge and reclaim Helen, who was abducted by Paris. And so there are those famous names. Some of them are mythological, but they're based on true events where you had um, Diomedes and Odysseus and so forth uh, who went to fight in those great battles against the walls of Troy. In 334 B.C., Alexander the Great visited those walls and made sacrifices to the Greek heroes who had died there in the Trojan War. Now, those walls still exist today. UNESCO made them a World Heritage Site in 1989, real walls. And, of course, there's Hadrian's Wall in England, sort of a diminutive wall constructed around 122 to 128 A.D. to keep the Scots from bothering the the Romans. It's only about 73 miles from coast to coast coast across uh, a narrow stretch of uh, middle to northern England. It's about four or five feet high in most places. Of course, there's the Berlin Wall. President Ronald Reagan, in 1987, gave his famous uh, speech to Gorbachev to tear down that wall, tear down this wall. And, of course, it was torn down beginning in 1989, and uh, the final parts were destroyed in uh, 1992. And these are historic walls. There are also metaphoric walls, of course, metaphorical walls. 
Uh, and we're going to talk about a wall today that is, is a real wall, was a real wall, but it's also a metaphorical wall, much more divisive, uh, much more infamous, much more relevant to us as Christians than any of these walls. It's mentioned in your Bible, very important wall. Before we reveal what this wall is, let's remind ourselves that walls can be used for good purposes and for harm. Now, there's a reference to a good wall in Job. Very important verse. Let's turn there. It's, a, it's an important principle, something to remind us uh, about the importance of obeying God's laws and trying to live righteously, trying to keep uh, away from sin. Of course, in the spring holy days, we, we talk about that. We meditate on removing sin from our lives. And here in Job chapter 1, we have a type of a wall, and actually for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years, uh, the wall, the type of wall mentioned here, was one of the most common walls that people would, would grow. This is a hedge that's spoken of. In Job chapter 1, verse 10, we'll begin in verse 8. <clears throat> the eternal says to Satan, the Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. We know Job had some lessons to learn, but God is very clear that Job, although he did have to learn about self-righteousness, Job was a righteous individual. Uh, he kept God's law for the most part, and God calls him righteous and blameless and upright and one who shunned evil. And so Satan answers the Lord, and he says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him? You know, a hedge is a, is a type of wall, and a hedge can protect. In Africa, they'll grow hedges to protect the villages uh, from wildlife. They, they've done that in North America, parts of uh, Europe. Uh, in World Wars I and II, often the tanks had a hard time getting through the hedgerows. A hedge can really protect, can really protect. So that's an example of a, of a wall that can be beneficial and helpful. But there's a different wall that we're going to discuss today. And this wall is much more important than the Great Wall of China or Hadrian's Wall or the Walls of Troy or any of these other walls down through history. Your Bible talks about this wall. Can you think of what the wall is I'm referring to? Do you remember this wall? If we've been baptized into Christ, if we've been crucified with Christ then this is a very meaningful, very meaningful question for us. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll introduce the wall that we're discussing today in the sermon. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2, and let's begin in verse 13. We're breaking into Paul's thoughts here. You might want to Put a marker in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll come back to Ephesians 2 a few times during the sermon. So Ephesians 2, and we'll begin in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been made near by the blood of Christ. Brethren, what is Passover about? And when we take that covenant at baptism, and when we, we renew our commitment to that covenant, at Passover, and when we claim 
that promise that through Christ's shed blood and true repentance, our sins can be forgiven, then we are reminded or should be reminded of this passage and other passages like it. Now, we're going to discuss more, much more detail who exactly Paul's talking about and what he's talking about here in Ephesians chapter 2. But all of us, in one way, were brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, continuing, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one. There's something or someone or somebody that Christ's sacrifice has reconciled, has made one. And he, Christ, has broken down the middle wall of division. He broke down a wall. There's some wall, a metaphoric wall based on a real wall. We'll go through what the Bible reveals about this wall. Uh, this, this is a metaphor, but there existed uh, for hundreds of years and still existed at that time and still exists today, a wall that this verse is based off of. And so <clears throat> Paul tells us that Christ broke down that middle wall of division, having abolished In his flesh, the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. There's a lot of material there. We'll come back to it and explore it. So there's some wall that Christ broke down 1,987 years ago, I guess it would be. 31 AD, that'd be 1,987 years ago. Christ was our Passover, and he broke down this wall of division or separation. What was this wall? Why did Christ break it down? Now, many people, many sincere Christians struggle over this passage, and there are a number of of points of potential confusion out there in the Christian world regarding this passage. But, brethren, this passage is an uplifting, important passage for us to understand. And I believe that most all of us in this room understand what this passage is about, but hopefully we'll explore it in a little more detail today. There are a number of commentaries. Jameson Fawcett Brown is one. It's okay. And I'd like to use Jameson Fawcett Brown uh, as an example of where there can be some accuracy and also a little bit of confusion about what this passage means. <clears throat> Jameson Fawcett Brown, in its exposition of Ephesians 2.14, explains that the middle wall of partition, and this is where they're accurate, that it was a balustrade of stone that separated the court of the Gentiles from the holy place, uh, with which it was death for a Gentile to pass. So a balustrade is just a word that means a, a wall, wall of stone or some separating divider or some, some, some divider. And Jameson Fawcett Brown and other commentators, you know, Clark and expositors and so forth, they're accurate about that. The Jews had constructed a wall uh, where it was death for the Gentiles to pass uh, beyond that wall to worship God in the, in the temple or in the court. Additionally, Jameson Fawcett Brown does rightly explain how it was Jesus Christ who made and became our peacemaker. And he reconciled Jews and Gentiles together and then as one reconciled those whom he called together to God. And they're absolutely correct about that. We'll talk about that more in the sermon today. However, then Jameson Fawcett Brown, like many uh, commentaries, uh, uses some language that can be 
misunderstood, and that is often misunderstood, and it's often misused and abused, especially by those uh, with a grace alone theology. With a grace alone theology. Uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown continues in discussing Ephesians 2.14 and 15, and it asserts that what Christ broke down was the Sinaitic law uh, with all of its regulations and rules and so forth. And as they discuss it, and as other commentaries discuss it, if you are not being careful in your reading or in understanding what the terms are really referring to, you can definitely walk away thinking that what Christ broke down was the need or what he did away with was God's law, the Ten Commandments. And that's not what this passage is talking about. Yet many, many people in the world, uh, that's what they take away from this passage. To assert that Ephesians 2.14 is doing away with the law would contradict many scriptures. And when I say the law, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, God's law, it would contradict many scriptures, as you know. Uh, Let's turn to Matthew 5, verse 17, just as one uh, quick reference. Matthew 5.17, a a memory scripture for most of us. And what does it say there? It tells us that Christ did not come to destroy the law. You probably can recite this. Uh, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And then, of course, people will say, well, there you go, fulfill. He filled up. He did away with it. He you know, caused it not to be needed anymore. He, somehow they'll try to make that argument. The word fulfill, without getting too technical, is the Greek word transliterated into the English, uh, plerio, P-L-E-R-O-O. And the church has explained this rightly for decades uh, as <clears throat> potentially or as able to be translated as to perform to perfection. Christ performed God's law to perfection, as we understand, but that doesn't mean he did away with it. Uh, It can mean to cause to abound, to cause to abound. It doesn't sound like doing away with something if you cause it to abound. Uh, It can also mean to magnify contextually. We won't turn to it, but if you reference Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, Isaiah 42, I'm sorry, verse 21, uh, that's a companion scripture to Matthew 5:17, Isaiah 42, verse 21. It is a Old Testament prophecy of the first coming of Christ, which will be fulfilled in its ultimate regard at the second coming when the kingdom of God is established. And it says very clearly that the eternal will magnify the law and make it more honorable. He'll magnify the law and make it more honorable. So no, Christ did not do away with the law. And Ephesians 4 uh, is not... Paul or Christ doing away with the law. What is Ephesians 4, verses 13 and 14 and 15 about? And what is the relevance to us, brethren, uh, as Christians? And what's the relevance to us as we approach the end of the age? It's a very, very relevant scripture, something we can be thankful for, but something I think we need to be reminded of from time to time. Now, The word in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, let's turn back there quickly. Ephesians 2, verse 15. And for sake of context, we'll begin again in verse 14, but we'll, we'll get to an important word that we want to discuss and understand. Ephesians 2, 14. 
For he, he, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of division between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. There's something that was so important uh, to Christ and to the Father that he, Christ, broke it down. He broke it down. He destroyed it. It should be important to us. But what was it that he broke down? Was it the Ten Commandments? No. What was it? Well, as we have explained before, the word here for ordinances is dogma or dogmata. This is a review for most of us. Dogma or dogmata. And we can know that God is not referring to the Ten Commandments here by simply looking at other uh, scriptures in the Bible where this word is used. Let's turn to Luke chapter 2, for example. Luke chapter 2. And let's see where dogma or dogmata is used elsewhere. And it's clearly not referring to the Ten Commandments or, in this case, not referring to the Old Covenant or any of God's, any covenant with God. Luke chapter 2. Here we have the same dogma or dogmata used. Whatever Christ broke down, it was this, brethren. It was, a, it was a, the word dogma referred to what he broke down. And so what do we see here in Luke chapter 2, verse 1? Very famous uh, passage where uh, it's revealed that the Messiah was, was born of Mary. And in verse 1, it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. All of the Roman Empire had to be censored or registered. Uh, this census first took place while uh, Quirinius was governing uh, Syria. A decree went out, a dogmata. Clearly not God's law there, clearly not the Ten Commandments being referred to. A civil decree, an ordinance, a dogmata. You know, we operate in civil society, and there are dogmata that we obey or we should. If you keep the speed limit, you don't go over 65 miles an hour in the speed limit 65, you're, you're obeying that dogma, that dogmata. It's a civil ordinance. As if trash day is on Wednesday, and you're not supposed to put your trash out until Wednesday, that's a dogmata. That's a civil ordinance. So here we see an example where dogmata can refer to a civil ordinance. And dogmatic can refer to ordinances of God as well, but it does not refer to a ordinance of God in Ephesians chapter 2. It refers to a misunderstanding of some instructions that God gave Israel in Ephesians chapter 2. Remember Isaiah 28.10, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little, one of the Keys for Bible study that we're often reminded of when we're confronted with a scripture that might seem a little difficult. Mr. Ames, in an uh, online article, How to Study Your Bible, he even references Ephesians chapter 2 as an example of a, of a difficult scripture. Let me read from that because it supports the point we're making. Uh, this is an article from Mr. Ames, How to Study Your Bible. It's online. Some, he says the following, some careless Bible students wrongly take Ephesians 2.15 to mean that God's Ten Commandments and his moral law are done away for Christians. This verse reads, quote, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. But if we look closely at that verse, Mr. Ames continues, 
we see that the word translated as ordinances, which is dogma in the Greek, refers to the man-made laws, which many Jews of Jesus' day had used, and pay attention to this, it's an important point, had used to cause division between themselves and Gentiles. The principle, Mr. Ames concludes, is to study all the Bible's references on a topic so we can be sure we understand it. And that, of course, is the uh, principle from, from um, Isaiah, isn't it? From Isaiah 28.10, here a little, there a little. Precept upon precept, line upon line. There is a connection, brethren, between Ephesians chapter 2 and something recorded in Deuteronomy that the Jews and Israel misunderstood and abused. Instruction from God that they interpreted wrongly. Let's turn back there and explore that. Deuteronomy chapter 23. Deuteronomy chapter 23. Because there is a tendency uh, with all nationalities, all nations, all peoples, uh, to fall into this type of wrong thinking. And here Israel fell into this wrong thinking over time as a result of their own carnal minds and hearts. But it is Deuteronomy chapter 23 where we can trace back the beginnings of where this wall of division uh, came from. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1. Here are qualifications for inclusion in the congregation of the Lord. Congregation of the Lord is used a number of times in these few verses, six times. When God uses something multiple times, it's for emphasis. So congregation of the Lord is used repeatedly here. So God is providing um, exclusions. There are Qualifications and some are excluded from the congregation of the Lord. Uh, those who are emasculated, mutilation, one of illegitimate birth, verse 2, until the 10th generation, um, an Amorite or Moabite to the 10th generation. Notice that they're excluded from the congregation of the Lord for a period of time. What is, what is the congregation of the Lord? What are you a member of? What are you part of? What are we part of? Now, we're under the new covenant today. This is the house of God. This is God's nation that he was working with in a special way. The congregation of the Lord. And they were excluded for a time. Why? Why? Not because God loves any other nation less, but because sin brings consequences. And because these nations and these people had resisted Israel coming out of the Exodus, or they were uh, considered spiritually um, unclean for other reasons, and it had to often do with paganism, pagan practices. Notice that they were excluded for a period of time. Verse 2, verse 3, a period of time. God never intended this to be a perpetual, permanent wall of, metaphorical wall of division. However, there was a physical wall that was constructed by Israel, and there were civil laws put in place by Israel, dogma, dogmata, that were based upon 
this instruction where it was interpreted in a wrong way by Israel. There was a misapplication by the nation of Israel of God's instructions. We'll discuss that further. Before we do, let's remind ourselves again, because sometimes it's easy for me to forget uh, how much God was working with Israel in a spiritual way, how much he was working with them in a spiritual sense, how much he wanted them to be a a holy nation. Uh, If you'll turn with me, we'll try to move quickly through these verses back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Just like to remind ourselves of this, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 7. Here we have Moses instructing Israel to be careful to observe God's laws. And verse 7, Moses says, What great nation is there that God uh, has that God is so near to it as for for what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the eternal, our God is to us for whatever reason we may call upon him for whatever reason they wanted to call upon him. They could, God was close to them. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law, which I set before you. Now the dogmata that the Israel and, and the Jews at Christ's time had further enacted were not the righteous uh, dogmata or God's law that's being referred to here. But again, the point is God was calling them to be a special people. He wanted a special relationship with them. If you'll turn back to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19 records Israel standing before Mount Sinai. Exodus 19. You're familiar with this passage in Israel's history. And we'll just notice in verse 6. Exodus 19 verse 6. They're about to receive the Ten Commandments. And what is recorded here? They're at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God wanted Israel to be holy. He was dealing with them in a spiritual way. He wanted them to be a holy people, a kingdom of priests, a holy people, a holy nation. Israel misunderstood, misinterpreted um, why they were set apart by God. And so the Jews, in their history, created a physical middle wall of division in the temple, as Jameson, Fawcett, Brown, and other commentators record. And that physical wall was to keep the Gentiles out of, from mingling with the Jews in the temple, in the courtyard, in, order to, in, in their worship of God. And there became an attitude of hostility uh, from the Israelites toward the Gentiles. And remember, brethren, Gentile is any nation that's not Israel. Arabs, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, French. Well, depends on if you're Israelite French, but, you know, any nation. There was hostility, enmity that had developed. Israel began to see themselves as better. But remember, Deuteronomy chapter 23, there was a temporary prohibition for certain nations to become part of the congregation of Israel because of sin and hostility towards God during the time of the Exodus. But it was temporary. Israel was indeed called to be a chosen people. 
But as we understand, neither they nor we are better than anyone else. We've been called by God. Israel was called by God. We won't turn to John 3.16. You can read Mr. Weston's uh, booklet expounding on it. But it's very clear God loves all people, all nations, gave his son to die for the whole world, every nation, every people. No, Israel was not better. Abraham was more faithful. Why was Israel set apart? The Bible, again, makes it very clear. Genesis chapter 17. Again, a review, brethren, but it's important, and I need to probably speed up. But Genesis chapter 17, let's review why Israel was considered a special people. Genesis 17 and verse 1, Israel forgot uh, the reasons uh, that they had a special relationship with God. I don't think we do. I think we're especially coming out of the Passover season, I, I hope that we have become more humble, we've humbled ourselves, and we've removed any pride from our lives. Uh, but, brethren, there are reasons I'm giving the sermon today when we think about what's com- coming in the future, what's already happening in the world around us. But what are the reasons that Israel was called special by God? Genesis 17, verse 1, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Eternal appeared to Abram and said to him, and, and said to him, I am Almighty God, I am El Shaddai, one of God's many names, El Shaddai. The Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations, God told him. Turn over a few pages to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis 21, verse 12. Here we have the account of uh, Ishmael. It was the son of the handmaiden who became the father of 12 princes who was given a blessing by God, but not the birthright blessing. And here we have God reminding us and showing us where the birthright blessing passed through, not through Ishmael, through Isaac. Genesis chapter 21, verse 12. God said, Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because the the lad uh, because of your, your bondwoman, so he's speaking of, of, of uh, Ishmael, who is not going to receive the, the birthright blessing, that covenant. Notice verse 12, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Ishmael was going to receive blessings as well, but the covenant and the exceedingly great promises were passed down from Abram to Isaac, to Jacob. Moses was very aware of this. Moses reminded Israel of this. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. I think that Moses, even back here, was uh, inspired by God and understood that he needed to remind Israel of why the eternal had that special relationship with them. And it wasn't because they were some mighty, wonderful people that was better than others. And so I think that's why God inspired Moses here, and I think that's why it's recorded for our reference today. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 37. Because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he brought you out of Egypt with his presence and with his mighty power. He drove out the other nations before them. Israel was special before God. And God made a covenant that he would uphold with Israel. It's very clear from scripture. They were not better than any other nation. But they were special. They were a holy people. 
They were governed by laws like we're governed by laws. And God expected them to behave in a certain way and expects us to behave in a certain way. Not to add, not to add to, which Israel did. They built the balustrade of rocks and told the Gentiles they weren't good enough. There's perpetual animosity that Christ destroyed, tore down 1,987 years ago. That's what Ephesians 2 is talking about. We won't turn to it for sake of time, but you can reference Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, Deuteronomy 14, 12, uh, where God desired Israel to be a special people, a, a special treasure, a holy people. But as is recorded many other places, you can reference Deuteronomy 9, verse 6. God shows us that Israel was stiff-necked, stiff-necked, stubborn. God has called us to be a special people. We are a special people. We're governed by his laws. His laws are a hedge around us. They're a blessing for us. And we don't add to, and we don't take away from his laws. And we don't allow ourselves, we shouldn't allow ourselves to interpret any of his laws or any of our special relationship with God in a way that would be in any way carnal or hateful toward others. That was what Israel did wrong, and Christ hated that. And he broke that wall of separation down. You know, it's interesting. God doesn't show partiality. And even in the Old Testament, it's very, very clear that God does not show partiality. Exodus 12, verse 49. Let's not turn there. I have a lot of verses today. But Exodus 12, verse 49 is just one of many references I could give you where God is clear that he wants the same law to apply to the native and to the alien living among you. God does not show partiality, but there are conditions to entering into the congregation of the Lord. There are conditions. We must be called. We must answer the calling. We must obey the rules today. Same in ancient times. And if a nation raised up its hand against the Lord, it may be punished for a certain amount of time. And excluded from the congregation for a certain amount of time. Not forever. As Israel had wrongly interpreted that and created their own dogma. Their own own dogmata. The New Testament, of course, is very clear as well. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, we'll turn to a couple other uh, references where we see that God is not a respecter of persons. Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. But that does not mean that God does not have laws and rules and requirements for us. Colossians 3, verse 11. Uh, There is neither Greek, and I'm breaking into the the passage, but um, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. If we are in the assembly of the Lord, if we've been called into the assembly of the Lord, the church of God, if we become a holy people like God wanted ancient Israel to become, like God referenced six times back there in Deuteronomy, he wanted them to become his, his holy congregation, the, the congregation of the Lord, then there's no Jew or Gentile, there's no slave or free. Uh, we're one in Christ, one in Christ. And God is not a respecter of persons, as Romans chapter 2, verse 11 says. He's not a respecter of persons. Let's turn to Romans. <clears throat> Let's turn to Romans. Romans chapter 11. 
Christ broke down that middle wall of separation, that middle wall of division. That was a physical, he broke down the metaphoric wall, but there was a physical wall. And that physical wall stood for animosity between Jews and Gentiles. And Christ says there's no room for that in the congregation of the Lord. Romans chapter 11. We have the branches and the wild tree. Wonderful, wonderful passage. Romans chapter 11. And we'll just take a moment to review a few of the uh, points here. Let's notice in verse 13. Romans 11 and verse 13. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul was preaching to the congregation of the Lord, but he was speaking to, for the most part, an audience here that, that were not Jews. And most of them were probably not Israelites at all. They were, they were Gentiles. Maybe they were Germans. Maybe they were Persians. Maybe they were Ethiopians. Moabites. One of the other great families of the Arabs. You know, maybe there were Orientals there. Turks. Maybe there were Chinese. And possibly there were, there were, um, you know, even, even Celts that had circled back around at that time. So Paul is speaking to them and he says, <clears throat> uh, Romans chapter 11 verse 13, that he's speaking to the Gentiles. And he says he's an apostle to the Gentiles, and he magnifies his ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and save some of them. What Paul is saying is, you know, if if some of the Jews who have had this antagonism toward the Gentiles, if some of them are provoked to some jealousy because I'm bringing the gospel to you, that magnifies my ministry. That's a wonderful thing. If some of them would be saved because of that. Verse 14. Verse 15, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And then notice what Paul does here in verses 16, 17, 18. He's, he's very instructive, very, in a way, corrective, in a loving way, but very important uh, passage here. He, he's sort of reminding uh, the Gentiles, don't get too proud either, right? Verse uh, 16, 17, if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. You know, Paul was a an apostle to the Gentiles, but what God was doing was grafting in the Gentiles into that holy congregation. That's what Paul's talking about here. And he uses different, different, simile, different similes or metaphors. Uh, He uses the branches in the wild olive tree in verse 17. If some of the branches were broken off and you being uh, a wild olive tree were grafted in, right? If some of the house of Israel, some of the Jews were broken off, but some of the Gentiles were grafted in, then you are a partaker of the root and of the fatness or the richness or the life of the tree. So don't boast against the branches. Don't boast against the tree. Now, Paul's telling the Gentiles not to boast against the Jews. We should not boast against one another. He's telling them to remember that 
they're supported by the root. Yes, some of the branches were broken off, so some of the Gentiles could be grafted in. Very, very um, important uh, passage for us, brethren. Not that I think we have a problem with this in God's church, but something important for us to understand, something that Christ was doing through through his own ministry and through the ministry of the apostles that he continues to do. God wants a holy people. And so we are becoming a holy people, but we're not a better people because of ourselves. When we drive back and forth uh, to work or to school or whatever, we're not better than those that we see on the road, but we've been called to be holy. And there are requirements for us to be part of that house of Israel, that house of spiritual Israel. We know from Galatians 3, let's turn, well, we won't, but Galatians 3, verse 29 reminds us that we're all Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I'll come back to that that thought in a moment. But Galatians 3.29 is another of many passages passages that, that helps us remember that we are all in it together and we're all heirs to the same promise if we're part of the house of God, the house of Israel, the congregation of the Lord. There's no Jew or Gentile, slave or free. We're all one. We're all Abraham's seed, all heirs to that promise. You know, the promise that God has for the church is much bigger, as you understand, than the promise that he gave to the descendants of Abraham, right? Your goal, our destiny is to rule over the nations and to rule over worlds and to rule in God's government and his family for eternity, eternity, Together, in love toward each other, in servant leadership to those whom we rule over and work with. But God did want Israel to be a special people, didn't he? And he wants us to be a special people. It's interesting. Let's turn to it. Uh, Zechariah chapter 14 there are uh, indications, of course, in that in the millennium, uh, there will be peace among the nations. We know from Habakkuk 2, verse 14, that uh, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the uh, waters cover the sea. So we know that in the millennium, it will be a time when the Holy Spirit will be freely available, uh, when the knowledge of God will, be, will permeate uh, the, the world. And so we have some insight into... Society during the millennium. And Zechariah 14, we'll often turn there regarding uh, the Feast of Tabernacles to make an important point about uh, God's holy days and the Feast of Tabernacles being kept in the millennium. But I want to go there for a different reason. Zechariah 14, verse 16. It shall come to pass that everyone who's left of all the nations shall come, uh, which, which came up against Jerusalem. So all the nations who had come up against Jerusalem during the Great Tribulation, the Day of the Lord, Uh, They shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, we know in the next verse that there won't be 100% perfect compliance initially, and God will have to, you know, correct and punish those who don't want to come up. But there's a secondary point I want to make here, and that is that we see a society in harmony. We see a society in harmony. We see a society where all the nations that had come up, Against Jerusalem, 
the nations that had just years before experienced World War III, the worst global war that will have ever occurred, billions killed. There's going to be a lot of ministering that we'll have to do to heal people, to heal people's minds, but through the Holy Spirit and through a lot of work, you see a picture of society where, no, not 100% of everyone's going to come up day one. But the nations come up to Jerusalem not to attack it, not for the Jews to say we're better than you, not for the Gentiles to say we're better than you. You know, why is there one reason for such anti-Semitism is that the Jews are blamed for killing Christ. And the Nazis used that. Who shove the spear in the side of Christ. We don't know. Now, the Jews brought him before the civil authorities, but who pronounced the sentence upon him? Which of my sins, which of your sins, did he hang there for? No animosity is permissible in the congregation of the Lord between races. And here, God will not tolerate Animosity, they'll come up together to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. We see in Isaiah chapter 19, another uh, small piece of insight. Let's turn there to uh, regarding the millennium, Isaiah 19. Maybe another familiar scripture for some of you um, that gives us, again, a little bit of a picture. Isaiah 19, verse 24. Regarding what God has in store, what his plan is for the millennium, for the nations, the physical nations that survive on into and then grow and repopulate the earth in the millennium. Isaiah chapter 19, verse 24. Well, let's begin in verse 23. Uh, in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and Egypt will come into, uh, sorry, and uh the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. Harmony, serving together. In that day, verse 24, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. We see here, uh, there's some principles that are not the main purpose of my sermon, but God will settle the nation's uh, back where he wants them to be settled. He'll settle the different nations in their lands. God, that's God's mind. But there will be harmony and love between the nations. And they'll serve with one another. And Israel and Assyria and Egypt, they'll be blessed by God. No wall of separation. No middle wall of separation. No animosity between Jew and Gentile. Christ broke down that, that wall. God will not have that in his holy congregation. Let's turn to Acts chapter 10. We have uh, an important comment by Peter regarding this very same topic. Acts chapter 10. Acts 10, and we'll notice in verse 34, 35. Of course, this is after 
the vision that Peter received from God uh, to show Peter that, you know, he was suffering a little bit from what ancient Israel had been suffering from for those hundreds of years, a little bit of pride, arrogance toward other nationalities. And so he had that vision, and God said, don't call any man unclean. Whom I call, Peter, you'll love them. You, know, you think about Passover. I wonder if Peter, the next Passover a year later, you know, 32, 33, 34, you think Peter was maybe washing the feet of Gentiles? Probably. You know, lovingly. So what the Holy Spirit does, doesn't it? It allows you to overcome. And so Peter here, Acts chapter 10, verse 34, opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation. Brethren, remember the context of who Peter's talking to. Peter was a bold, bold Israelite. He had been a proud Israelite. For generations, Israel had not suffered the Gentiles to intermix with them, to intermingle with them in their worship in the temple. There was a wall of separation, a balustrade, and a wall of enmity. And there was enmity and hostility, not only in a you know figurative way, but in a real way. And so this is this is that Peter after conversion. And he says, There's no partiality in, in any nation, whoever fears him. And works righteousness and works righteousness is accepted by him. What is righteousness? To keep God's law. Then we're accepted by God. God does require from us, just like he did from ancient Israel, to live by certain criteria. But again, it doesn't make us better. It just means we've been blessed and called. God's shown grace on us. This is one of the biggest reasons why there is no room for racism, animosity between the races in God's church. And this is a problem that I'm thankful we don't have much of. I'm sure that not everyone's perfect, but it goes both ways. In the United States, you know, it's so easy to look at it through a black and a white filter, isn't it? But God was calling Arabs and Persians and Moabites and Italians and Jews and Germans and Ethiopians, Egyptians, Libyans, and Peter, or sorry, Paul reminded you know, them as well. Don't don't be hostile toward the Jews either. I'm not going to get deep into that subject, but I would remind everyone to listen to Mr. Weston's uh, sermon. It's at lcg.org. Uh, the Sins of Racism, Intolerance, and Anarchy. Just a very uh, excellent sermon. The Sins of Racism, Intolerance, and Anarchy. You can find that on lcg.org. Mr. Wakefield, <clears throat> Dexter Wakefield, wrote, a, wrote a, a very fine article a few years ago uh, titled Racism in America, a thing, in the, a thing of the Past. And it's not a thing of the past, sadly. And we know from Matthew chapter 24, 
It's going to become more of a problem in the future, isn't it? When nation rises against nation and ethnicity against ethnicity. And so, brethren, in the church, we must insulate ourselves from that. We must be thankful that Jesus Christ tore down that wall of separation. He died for the Jews. He died for the Gentiles. He died for the Reubenites, for the Ephraimites, for the Arabs, for the Japanese. He died for the whole world. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful thing for us to understand? And isn't it just a terrible, terrible, terrible lack of understanding, a, a, a def, just a horrible deficiency that the world tries to explain away Ephesians chapter 2 very often as that God's doing away or Christ is doing away with God's Ten Commandments. You know, that's, that's the mind of Satan pushing that explanation on people. No, no, far from it. Christ did away with the animosity in the house of Israel between uh, the races. What was it in Ephesians chapter 2, let's turn there, that Christ broke down? Ephesians 2 verse 14, what did he break down? Let's turn back to Ephesians 2 verse 14, read it one more time. I would say that he tore down or broke down a few things, I think three specifically, Symbolically, we're broken down. Ephesians 2, verse 14. I'll read it again, then I'll tell you what I think are three things that he broke down. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of division between us. What did Christ break down? Well, he abolished the human, human ordinances that the Jews had constructed, the dogmata. The dogmata, where they were not able to interact, mingle uh, with Gentiles. He abolished the animosity between Jew and Gentile. He reconciled Jews and Gentiles together in love and peace. How was that made possible? Well, through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. And most importantly... He broke down the wall of separation caused by sin that cannot be atoned for without his blood that would separate us from the Father. He abolished the dogmata, the animosity between the nations that are called in God's church, that are converted, and the separation between those whom he's called and the Father. It reminds me of Psalm 133, that we've been reminded that that was uh, Mrs. Loma Armstrong's favorite scripture, one of her favorite scriptures, I believe. And it's one of our hymns. And it's, it's a psalm that rings true in the church of God. And it's a blessing that it rings true. Psalm 133, verse 1. I can recite it, and you can probably recite it, but let's turn there. It's, I think it's often better to read the words, see the words, meditate on the words, and not just hear the words. Psalm 133, verse 1. What a privilege, brethren, that this is the reality that God has called us to. 
And again, if I'm not mistaken, this was one of Mrs. Armstrong's favorite scriptures, if not her favorite. It's one of the Psalms of of Ascent as well. It's the 14th Psalm of Ascent. I think that's probably intentional by God, uh, because what do the Psalms of Ascent picture? What do they prepare us for? They prepare, prepare us for dwelling together in unity at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a foretaste of what? The millennium, for dwelling together in harmony and in unity in the millennium. And so as we approach the Feast of Tabernacles, we can review the Psalms of Ascent in those days leading up. And tradition is that Israel would sing those songs as they walk, one song per day, to to Jerusalem. And then also there's tradition that they would be sung on the steps of the temple as they uh, by the priests uh, before opening night. And so here we have the 14th of the Psalms of Ascent. And with all that imagery in place, we're going to be dwelling together in unity at the Feast of Tabernacles, or more importantly, in God's kingdom in the millennium, or more importantly than that, in his family forever, right? We read, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. What a blessing. And it is. It's a tremendous blessing for us to dwell together in unity with one another, which is made possible through the Holy Spirit. It's made possible through our repenting of, you know, any vanity or or problems that we have with other people or other races or other nationalities. But this is the vision that God has for his holy assembly, that we will dwell together righteously according to his laws, but in unity with one another. And we saw already uh, from a couple of scriptures, you know, Zechariah, and there are others, Isaiah, and there's a few in Isaiah, where there's that picture in the millennium that the, that the nations will dwell together in unity for the most part. Again, won't be perfect day one. What a blessing, brethren, to understand that and be part of God's church. To be, in a very real way, insulated from the satanic thoughts, the satanic mentality out there in the world that's developing North against South, black against white, this Asian, uh, Asian group against this Asian group. You know, again, I'll say it again. Sometimes in the United States, we look at it from a U.S. perspective. Uh, you go to Japan, uh, there are major issues between different ethnicities. In India, major issues between different ethnicities. In the United States, there have been major issues. I grew up, uh, you know, my family... My dad's side, uh, Polish, and I remember um, th- him talking about, you know, how the uh, the Irish and the Dutch and the Poles and the Germans couldn't get along in their little communities. Isn't it wonderful to be insulated from that? You know, coming out of the Passover season when we've humbled ourselves, it's, I think, appropriate to thank God for what he's doing with us as his holy congregation, his holy assembly. So what are some walls, brethren, that we can tear down in our own lives? So we're not just appreciative of what Christ did, but so that we can become more of a holy people. What are some walls 
that we can tear down. Uh, We understand, brethren, let's turn to Matthew 7, verse 23. We understand this principle that we uh, must repent of sin. We must uh, continually go to God and ask uh, for forgiveness and for Christ's sacrifice to cover uh, our mistakes, our faults, our sins when we fall short. We cannot be practitioners of sin. We cannot be practitioners of pride or vanity or hatred toward others and and inherit the kingdom. Uh, Matthew 7, verse 23. I won't spend a lot of time on this point. We have here where Christ uh, tells uh, us and the world, he says, you know, you can't just talk the talk. You can't just say, Lord, Lord, you know, I love the Lord. Verse 22, many will claim that they love the Lord. But as we understand, verse 23, he will declare to those who don't attempt to walk righteously, those who don't put sin out of their lives, those who are not repentant of sin, those who practice lawlessness, they will not be part of his kingdom. And let's read it. Matthew, 20, 20, Matthew 7, we'll just begin in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We can't practice lawlessness and inherit eternal life. What are some walls that we can ask God to help us break down in our lives? That maybe we need to work on overcoming further. Uh, the first is the walls or are the walls of pride. The walls of pride. Let's turn to Micah chapter 6. Micah 6 and verse 8. Ancient Israel suffered from pride, didn't they? But it's interesting. You know, then the Gentiles, they were rebuked in Romans, apparently for suffering from pride as well. humans have this tendency to fall into that trap. You know, you you go to high school, and my little high school is better than your little high school over there, right? And then, you know, well, my little local basketball team is better than your local basketball team. Uh, Brethren, you know, 99.99% of the world has never, never even heard of your high school. So it's just not that important, but that's how humans are. Right? My state's better than your state. You know, my country's better than your country. It's easy to fall victim to pride. I don't think there's a racism problem in the church, but, uh, you know, it's, that's something that Satan works to stir up in the world quite a bit. And so what does God... Uh, What's he pleased with? What, what does God approve of? What, what, what impresses God? Is it, you know, your high school football team or, or, you know, the Russian military or the Chinese military? Do those things impress God? No. Micah 6, verse 8. He has shown us. He's shown us. He's shown you, O oh man, what is good. What does God require of us? What does God consider good? To do justly? 
to live by his laws, to practice his laws, to love his laws, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. It takes all three, brethren. It takes all three to be an acceptable member of God's body. It takes all three to be an acceptable part of the assembly of the Lord. Justice, God's law, yes. The Jews were attempting, and, you know, humanly speaking, the Jews were keeping God's laws uh, generally, right? Kept the Sabbath, abstained from unclean food, you know, they knew it was wrong to kill and murder and so forth and commit adultery. They didn't take God's name in vain. I'm not saying they were all perfect, but, you know, they, they got that point. How about mercy? You know, we could think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. You could think of the Pharisee in the temple who, you know, stood up and said, look how great I am. But this tax collector, he's nobody. How are they doing with mercy? How are we doing with mercy? I think we're doing well. We should be doing better than the carnal Israelites. I think we're doing well. But it's something for us all to think about, me as, me as well. How about walking humbly? How about walking humbly? I think we're doing well. But it's something to be reminded of. Takes all three. What pleases God? Keeping his law to do justly, but also to be merciful toward others. You know, if we're easily offended or we hold grudges, we're not merciful. If we are respecter of persons, we're not merciful. If we don't pray for others who are suffering, we're not merciful. Not as much as we should be. Walking humbly. It's interesting that, you know, two of the three requirements there, I think we can see where ancient Israel was falling short. And so we have to make sure we don't fall short. What's another wall that we can pray that God will help us to tear down? We've been talking all about it. Uh, Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And this verse is not exactly about uh, this topic uh, specifically, uh, I guess in a way it is. Uh, but what's another wall or what are other walls we can tear down? Well, clearly the walls of racism. There is no place uh, for that in God's church in any way at all. Uh, you know, there's no north versus south. There's no Belgians better than the French or the French are better than the Poles or the Germans are better than the Italians, or the Texans are better than the, uh, the Cajuns. Matthew chapter 5, you know the principle. So the second wall we can ask for God to help us to tear down is the wall of racism or, or you know, feeling that we're superior to others in, in any way. Verse 21 You've heard of old that it was said, uh, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder for whoever murders uh, will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother Raka uh, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. I know this is not a scripture about racism specifically. We've already covered a number of those, but we can't have hatred toward one another. And brethren, that's what Satan is going to stir up at the end of the age between the nations How did Satan stir up Hitler against the Jews? 
millions, millions hauled off, put in trains, many died along the way, couldn't sit down, couldn't lie down, four days, five days, I won't continue. How did Satan drive that? Racism. It works both ways. Why have we had so many wars? What will Satan stir up at the end of the age? He'll stir up a lot of sin. You know, there will be vanity and there will be false religion. And let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. We know that there will be a stirring up of strife between the nations. Matthew 24. We need to be immune to that. We need to understand and remember that the Messiah, our Passover, he tore that down in 31 A.D. You know Matthew 24. Let's just skim through a little. Verse 4 and 5. We're told that we should not be deceived at the end of the age. Many will come and will try to deceive. There will be false religion. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. And they'll get worse. But don't be troubled. All these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. God will provide a way for you. He will provide the strength to you. He will most likely provide a place of safety for you if you're faithful, if you're Philadelphian. Verse 7, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And you understand, we've been through this many times, this is speaking of national uh, states and also it's speaking of ethnicities. Ethnicities. And we're going to see more of that. In the years to come. How many professing Christians. Will get caught up in that. You know it's sad. I wish Jameson Fawcett Brown. And expositors. And all the Protestant preachers. And all the Catholic priests. I wish they'd all repent. But. If they would understand this at least. You know Ephesians 2 is not about. Christ doing away with God's law. It's about him doing away, doing away with the enmity between the nations in the assembly of the Lord. That alone would do so much to help the world be a better place. And we look forward to that time coming in the kingdom, which we've already read a couple of scriptures that give us that picture. The final wall that we could ask God to help us break down are any walls of unrepented of sin. Just any any unrepented of sin that we're, we're still keeping, you know, hidden, uh, so to speak. You know, God searches the heart. Anything contrary to the Ten Commandments, any cutting of corners. Uh, brethren, none of us are perfect. We all fall short from time to time. Paul talked about struggling, struggling. You struggle. You struggle, I struggle. Hopefully we're, you know, for the most part, we're keeping God's law. We're 
you know, not profaning his name, we're not going after pagan gods or committing adultery or lying or stealing or whatever. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. But it's a time of the year when we've been examining ourselves and asking God to help us clean ourselves out. And we want to not have any walls that divide us or separate us from God the Father. And sin separates. Righteousness provides a hedge to protect us from Satan the devil. Righteousness and keeping God's law is like a thick, thorny hedge, brethren. And Satan is out there like a lion, and the demons are out there like lions, and they would love to get to you. But fearing God, keeping his law, they cannot get to you. They cannot get to you. Practicing sin, inviting them in through what's going on now in the media, Uh, there is so much now, as a side note, in the media that parents need to be aware of. The number of shows, the number of movies, the number of shows on Netflix, Hulu, and so forth that are based on demonism is amazing. And they can binge watch now. And I remember when I was younger... The Exorcist came out, and we didn't see it, and we told people not to see it. And I remember someone who went to see it, and uh, they weren't a close friend, and they ended up possessed. And that happened. Tell you the person's name, what that person's parents had to do with that person, who snuck out, you know, interestingly enough, on a Saturday evening, I won't say more, but saw the movie. And now, you can get that kind of stuff on your phone. And to make it even better, now there's augmented reality. That's just great. I was unaware of that until recently. Where you can see the demons from the shows superimposed in your house, in the neighborhood, and you can interact with them. And there's a whole industry starting where software developers are writing software to take these characters from these movies and put them in a virtual reality. So you wear the glasses, you see them. Inviting demons in. Why do we see an explosion in requests for exorcism. I forget the exact statistics. Hundreds of thousands, though. It's more than hundreds of thousands of requests for exorcism last year around the world. There's a link to an article on the Tomorrow's World website about that. Be very careful. God's God's law is a hedge. A thick thorny hedge that keeps Satan away. Practicing sin tears down that hedge a little bit. Practicing sin is a wall between us and God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. 1 John 1, verse 8. 
Again, a new commandment. I'm sorry. One. This is the message which we, um, which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we have, and if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Brethren, we walk in fellowship with him and in fellowship with one another, cleansed from sin, cleansed from the sins of racism, the sins of drunkenness, the sins of whatever. If we're repentant, if we truly repent, then we have that promise. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, I'm perfect, I have no sin, I have no, no need for Christ's sacrifice, you know, I've I'm walking perfectly. If we say that, you know, that's not the truth. There's no truth in us if we say that. Verse 9, if we confess our sins to God, to Christ, then our Messiah, the eternal, he is just. He will forgive us, cleanse us from our sins. And there will be no wall between us and the Father. Let's turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. What did Christ do here in Ephesians chapter 2? Ephesians 2 verse 11. Just one of the most pivotal, pivotal scriptures in the Bible regarding God's plan for the world. Therefore, remember... That you once, Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, they were aliens, they had been separated from the commonwealth of Israel. And brethren, until God called us and we truly repented and we were baptized, with the exception of the children who are sanctified by their believing parents or their you know, their, their caregivers, their grandparents or uncles, if you're a child in the church, you're sanctified, you're set apart, but we were all separate from God before he called us, before we answered that call, before we were baptized, became converted. We were aliens, as it says in verse 12, from the commonwealth of Israel, from the house of God, from the house of the Lord. We were strangers from the covenants of promise. Those great promises of eternal life, brethren, living in God's family for eternity. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been made near by the blood of Christ. That applies to us. It applied to the Gentiles then. It applies to all of us today around the world, whomever God calls. For he himself is our peace, who made us, who has made both one, who broke down the middle wall of division between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments, those human dogma that the Jews and Israel had created, wrongly interpreting what God had instructed back in Deuteronomy. To separate themselves, to have a feeling of superiority against the other nations. Those are broken down, and in God's church, those are broken down. And so we have peace with one another, and we have peace with God. 
Because of this, brethren, there's a great promise that can come true. Let's just turn over a few pages in conclusion, Ephesians chapter 4. Because of this, brethren, because we are one, one with God, one in the body of Christ, with one hope, one hope, one calling, then Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13 is an example of a scripture that can come true, that can, um, you know, something we can look forward to. Speaking of the roles of the ministry here, but notice, I'm going to bring out a point in verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith, we've been called into unity. Unity doctrinally, unity with God the Father, with Jesus Christ, unity with each other. We're working toward, and we've been called toward the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, all of us being built up into a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We can be thankful that that's what God is doing with us individually and that that is what God is doing with us as his church, as his holy assembly. As we wait eagerly for Christ's return.